pick one of your favorite battle scenes portrayed in a movie where it just got intense, which one would you pick? Maybe for some of you Marvel Avenger fans, you know, the last couple scenes in either Infinity Stone or End Games would be your pick. Maybe for those of you who are war buffs, the opening scene of, of Saving Private Ryan. Wow, is that sobering. Or maybe a court scene. Maybe some of you have seen A Few Good Men with Tom Cruise and, and, and Nicholson in the court scene. You know, you, don't, you won't, can't handle the truth. I think I've watched that over ten times. Maybe you think of some battle scenes in the Bible. Jericho. <laughs> really wasn't much of a battle, was it? <laughs> I mean, the, the musicians did all the work. Or David and Goliath. One of my favorite is in 2 Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat. It said a vast army was coming against Jerusalem. But Jehoshaphat did the right thing. He said, God, as he prayed, our eyes are on you. And again, Cal, you may want to hear this. They sent the musicians first into battle. But again, it wasn't much of a battle. God created chaos amongst the, the armies that came to fight against them. And they basically killed each other. The Israelites didn't have to do anything. They went out to collect the plunder. And it says they collected the plunder for three days. And they didn't even raise a sword. The kind of battle where God fights for us. On our series in Mark, we're going to look at an intense battle scene. And it may not be one you, you don't want me to think of. But it begins in the garden. And it goes to Easter morning in the tomb where God again through Christ came to fight for us. But it was, as we'll look at in Mark 14, it was intense. And I'll, and I'll show you why. If you turn your Bibles, follow there as I read along. They went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground. And he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back again, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning a third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting enough? The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. The one who was standing near drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. 
Am I leading rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Three reasons I see this as an intense battle scene. First of all, the intense suffering. The intense suffering of Jesus. We're really just going to focus on Jesus. The first couple of verses uh, this weekend. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus react various ways. He, he gets righteously angry when those who are using the temple as a way to make money and are abusing it. We see him weep when Lazarus dies and he's standing before the tomb. We see his, his strong passion against the religious leaders and their hypocrisy and phoniness. But nothing that we've seen in the Gospels of Jesus compares to what happens now. As they go into the garden, a very familiar place that they had visited a number of times to pray, Mark uses not one, not two, but three very intense phrases to describe Jesus. That he was deeply distressed. That he was troubled. And the one, really the most powerful one, that his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Probably very few of us have ever felt that. But, I mean, why? I mean, Jesus, as he had spoken about his impending death, did so almost without emotion on a number of times as he described it to the disciples. Jesus made the plans to come to Jerusalem at this very moment, strategically. But now, as this moment faces him, he is overwhelmed with intense suffering within. Why is that? Mark even says that he goes and prays. He falls to the ground as he's praying to his father. Why? Well, consider what Jesus would emotionally experience, the emotional anguish of what was soon to happen. Have you ever been betrayed by a friend? Someone you trusted, someone you invested in, someone you cared for, and they turned their back on you? Soon, Jesus would be betrayed by Judas. In Matthew's account, he even calls Judas friend at that very moment of betrayal. Have you ever been deserted? I mean, think of, think of one of the most difficult times that you've experienced in your life. What would it have been like during that crucial moment of your life if everyone you trusted and leaned upon deserted you? Pretty soon, Jesus is going to be alone. All the disciples take off. The one who's only wearing a linen, when they grab the linen, he even takes off without that, fleeing naked to get away. The last hours of Jesus' life, he will be alone. Have you ever been falsely accused of something? Something you, you didn't do, but for some reason the evidence seemed to point that it was you and people are believing it. 
You know, I think of the movie Fugitive with, with, with Harrison Ford. He's accused of killing his wife who he loves. Jesus, who had never sinned, is now accused of blasphemy. One of the most serious sins against God, his father. And then treated like a criminal because of it. Jesus came to his people, but he was rejected. Have you felt being rejected? John, the gospel writer, even says he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to them out of God's love and mercy, but they rejected him. The same people who on Palm Sunday were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, just a few days later are now saying, crucify him, crucify him. Give us Barabbas, a notorious criminal instead. When Jesus is on the cross, Matthew records for us that people walked by and they hurled insults on him. Not just they insulted him, I mean they just hurled it on him. When he's doing the greatest act of love anyone could ever do. Peter would later write, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. But not only the emotional anguish, consider the physical anguish that Jesus was about to encounter. Soon the soldiers would take him and they would wrap a, some thorns into a crown and they would just jam it on his head. They would wrap him in a purple robe and treat him like a king, only they would take the staff and they would hit him in his face over and over. They would spit on him, cover his head, and say, oh, you who can prophesy, prophesy who's hitting you now, as they took turns, was wailing on him. And then it says Jesus was eventually handed over to be flogged, to be whipped. They would flog prisoners 39 times because they believed that 40 was the death blow. 39 times. But this just wasn't a, an ordinary whip. I mean, we know that the Romans would, would tie pieces of, of metal and rock, broken clay to this whip. So that not only when, when, when he would be whipped, would it, would it cause a, a mark a bruise, not only would it tear open, but it would take out chunks of flesh. It would be brutal. And if that wasn't all, soon they would lead him to the cross where they would nail spikes into his wrists, into his feet. But not just there to lay, they would put him up, and so his weight would be resting on those three pieces of metal. But not only that, in order to breathe, you would have to push yourself up on the spike in your feet and pull yourself up from the spikes in your wrist just to get a breath. Every breath. As Jesus is back, that is already maligned. 
going up and down on this rough piece of wood just to breathe. This would go on for hours until the prisoner finally died. Why would Jesus do this? But not only consider the emotional anguish and the physical anguish, those weren't even the worst. Consider the spiritual anguish. And this really is wrapped up in point two, the intense horror is what I would call it. The intense horror. As Jesus begins to pray, he uses two very significant phrases. He says the hour, the hour that has come. In Luke it says that the hour that has been given over to darkness. And then he talks about this cup that he must drink from. And sometimes that cup can just mean your fate in life. But from the Old Testament apocryphal understanding of the cup was that this cup was God's wrath. That he would be drinking of God's wrath. Isaiah 51, 17. Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath. It is God's righteous judgment upon sin. So not only is Jesus looking forward to this emotional anguish and the physical anguish, but the spiritual pain that's twofold. First, of becoming sin. And the second is experiencing God's righteous judgment, His wrath, because of that sin. Philip Hughes writes, it is important to recognize that the shame of the cross where Christ bore the sins of the world is something infinitely more intense than the pain of the cross. Others have suffered the pain of crucifixion, but he alone has endured the shame of human depravity in all its fullness and degradation. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us. I mean, can you imagine never having experienced the weight and the shame and the guilt of sin for the first time? And not only one sin. I mean, I mean, think about the things in times in your life. I mean, there's been times I, I've really blown it. And just the weight of it and the hurt that it's caused and the shame, just of one sin at times, can be unbearable. But think of my lifetime. Think of your lifetime. I mean, think of the weight of, of just those in this room. That Jesus became sin. All of our sin. Of all time. This one who knew no sin. Isaiah 6, Isaiah goes into the temple after the death of the king, and he sees a magnificent visage. He sees the glory of God. He sees, actually John says, he sees Jesus. And he sees the angels there worshiping him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This being that is so pure, so righteous, so innocent, becoming something so ugly. And vile. 
because of our sin. And he did that willingly for you and for me. But not only becoming the sin, the, the second half of that is, is now is experiencing the wrath of God upon himself. This one who had had a perfect relationship with his father. Now having to experience the righteous judgment of his father because of our sin. Paul writes in Galatians 3.13, Jesus became a curse for us. Cursed is anyone who's been hung on a tree, which Jesus allowed himself to do for us. It's understandable that while on the cross and becoming our sin and experiencing God's wrath, why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As his father has to turn his heavenly gaze away from his son for the first time in all of eternity. Jesus did that for us. One hymn says, surely he has borne our grief. But Jesus does this, he says, because the scriptures must be fulfilled. And certainly one of the scriptures that I'm sure Jesus was thinking was Isaiah 53, which we saw just a, a portion of it on the screen earlier as we were worshiping the Lord. Isaiah 53, surely he took up our infirmities. And carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. This brings us to the third intense moment here as Jesus is praying. And this is the intense choice that Jesus faced. He is praying, God, if there's any way that this cup might pass. But here's where it comes down to it. Not my will, but yours be done. Three times as Jesus wrestled with what was about to, to, he was to experience. But this is what needed to happen. For the beauty of God's justice at that moment to be on the cross. To also be the time where the beauty of God's grace and his love and his mercy for us. Jesus desires to obey his father and it's stronger than his desire to please himself or his own comfort. Jesus' desire to serve you is greater than his desire to serve himself. Not his will be done. Philippians 2. Jesus, who being the very nature of God, nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be used for his own purpose, his own pleasure, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and found in the appearance of man. He even humbled himself and became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Why? For you and for me. Jesus chose you. He chose to do this for you. He chose to die for you. He chose to take your sins upon himself. 
so that then he could offer you as a gift his own righteousness. Forgiveness. So of all epic battles that you've ever watched, this one that begins in the garden has everything to do about you and me. So what does it mean to me? It means that Jesus is worthy. He's worthy of my faith. This God who created me was willing to endure this for me so that I could spend eternity with him. So I wouldn't have to be cast out of eternity from his presence because of my sin and my rebellion. He chose to pour out his love. So he is worthy of my faith. He is worthy of my allegiance. He's worthy of my love. He is worthy of my worship. What does it mean? It means that Jesus did this so that I could become righteous. This person who was rebellious against God. Paul goes on in that verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. But here's the flip side. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that one day Jesus would usher me into the presence of God and what God would see would no longer be my sin, but it would be the righteousness of His own Son that I would be covered in His holiness, the ones that the angels sang about. All of us will live for eternity. The question is where? Will you live in a place where you are paying for the penalty of your sins, which you deserve and I deserve? Or you, will you be living in eternity in the presence of God because you've allowed Jesus to take away your sins and to offer you forgiveness and righteousness? What does this mean to me? Then it means that the moment now that I'm tempted because I've been forgiven if I'm being tempted, I now have a new understanding of what this sin cost Jesus to make me righteous. So I can no longer see my sin as just casual or no big deal. I know what it cost Jesus. And so because of him, I can be strong and say no and resist and instead pursue righteousness because I no longer have to be controlled by my sin nature. I can be controlled by the very Spirit of Christ who did this for me. What does it mean? It means that as I'm interacting with other people, I now begin to need to think about how God treated me. Paul goes on in Ephesians 5, he says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, then live a life of love. Why? Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Because Jesus did that for me. What that means is what I need to do for you. I need to forgive you. I need to bear with you. Just as he had patience with me, I gotta have patience with you. As he's been gentle to me, I gotta have gentle to you. 
It changes the way that I interact with people. It changes not only our eternity, but it changes everything about our life today. Jesus is worthy of all of that for us because of what he gave. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we uh, bow our heads before you, we can only say thank you and humbly acknowledge that we are not worthy of all that you have done for us. And Lord, out of the riches of your grace, out of the riches of your love, out of the riches of your mercy, you found a way to be a righteous, just God. But also one who could extend us abundant grace. And Jesus says you began entering into this hour, this moment. We thank you for what happened in the garden, for your choice to serve us, to go through what you knew was coming for us, to become sin for us, so that we in you can become righteous before God. So that we no longer have to be controlled by our sin, but can be controlled by your very presence in us. The writer to the Hebrews says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. Lord, give us strength. Help us to find victory in all that you've done for us. Lord, you are worthy of our faith. And if there's anyone here who has not put their faith in you, has not embraced and welcomed and received this gift, this precious gift, Lord, I pray that tonight, this weekend, that they would do so and not let another moment pass. For Lord, we know that your wrath is coming upon sin. But you give you, we give you praise that we have an option to be forgiven instead. For you are such a great God. Worthy is your name. In Jesus' name, amen.